There has been no tougher or more dangerous job in history than coal mining. It's a profession that has seen more deaths and more legends than any other in American history. It's a job that hinges on life and death and the suspense of waiting for something terrible to happen. Mining for coal has created extraordinary tales of violence, bloodshed, murder, labor troubles, and ghosts. The struggles of the working man against the power and greed of the coal mine owners have created stories of deadly drama, while the dangers the men face beneath the earth tell their own stories of heartbreak and horror. It's been said that during the heyday of coal mining in the late 1800s and early 1900s, at least 75,000 men died beneath the earth of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and throughout the Appalachians. Death seemed to be everywhere. Most miners didn't live past 40. They died in accidents, disasters, explosions, cave-ins, or from the slow, cruel death of the black lung. It often seems as though nature takes a revenge on those who steal the riches from her belly, working the black scene deep beneath the earth where there's no escape when things go horribly wrong. Is it any wonder under such deadly circumstances that coal miners created a trove of superstitions in hopes they might ward off the terrors that waited for them in the dark? If you saw a dog or a black cat or a woman, especially a redheaded woman, in a mine, it usually meant that someone was going to die. You saw a white rat, an accident was going to happen. Never, ever whistle in a mine. Never work on Good Friday because it would mean disaster for your family. And never change jobs on any other Friday. A sudden warm breeze in a mine meant the passing of a ghost. The number 13 was always unlucky. Never make a plan when your last shift in the mine is coming around something terrible might happen. There are even things that might happen at home that can bring bad luck at the mine. Bad luck always followed when a miner put his boots on the kitchen table. Putting a penny in your pocket before going to work was good luck. But if a bird flew into the house though, that was always a bad sign. If you heard a banging sound within the walls of the mine, always listen because the spirits of miners who were killed were warning you of danger. These spirits called Tommyknockers by Welsh and Cornish miners who came to America were often playful, stealing and hiding tools, but they were considered a miner's best friend, or perhaps their only friends. Most miners of the last century were immigrants, men who had saved every penny to come to America and find a better life. Ironically, their lives were probably shorter than if they'd stayed home. They were grown men and young boys, nameless, unable to speak English, faces covered in black dust and dirt, and often not even counted in the official death tolls in the mines where they died. The pay was low, the conditions were horrible, and the men who owned the mines cared only for profits. The men who worked the black seam were useful only for the labors they performed. They were expendable, both to the men who paid their meager wages and to the earth itself when the time came for retribution. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our new season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. And this episode owes a special thanks to Renee Cruz, 
who not only wrote about these stories first, but she took me to the places where they happen. Oh, we have a long road ahead of us this season, traveling to America's forests, farms, and fields with tales of witchcraft and hexes, cults and curses, calamities and cannibalism, massacres and mysterious disappearances, and more magic, mayhem, sinners, and spirits than we've ever offered before. This is episode number nine of the season. This time we're taking you beneath the ground of America's coal fields in 1907, the year when the earth wreaked its vengeance against the men who tried to take its riches for themselves. The month of December 1907 would become the deadliest on record for America's coal mines, and the horror of it still lingers to this day. There is no question that making a living in an American coal mine could be a harsh existence in 1907. The coal mining industry gave birth to a unique type of community called a patch town, a collection of houses and stores that were built up around the mines where the residents worked. Everyone in the patch either worked for the mine or were the families of those who did. The homes were simple, neat, and had to be kept clean on company orders. Miners didn't live there by choice. They were required to do so, and their rent each month was deducted from their pay. It was the same way with the Patch General Store. A miner and his family bought all their groceries there, shoes, clothes, tools, anything they needed. And it was all deducted from their pay, whether they liked it or not. Most miners were not even paid in cash, but with scrip. The coal companies printed their own scrip and could only be used in the company store. If a miner quit his job, he would be broke because he couldn't use the script anywhere else. He'd also be broke if he was injured on the job and couldn't work. There was no fallback plan. If he couldn't work or if he was killed, the family had 24 hours to leave their home. If a miner quit for any reason, he and his family had until sundown to be out of the patch. Sounds pretty awful, right? Well, it gets worse when we mix in the coal police a private police force hired by the owners to keep peace in the patch. The laws were all written by the company and they could be harsh, but the coal police spent most of their time kicking families out of their homes, roughing up anyone who used the word union or making troublemakers disappear. They were the boogeymen of the patch towns, feared by the miners and their wives and used to keep misbehaving children in line. The mines themselves weren't just awful, they were often terrifying too. The men often traveled miles underground along dark, suffocating tunnels to reach their work sites, spending long, grueling days removing coal from the seams with blasting powder, picks, and shovels. Narrow vertical shafts ventilated the work areas, bringing in fresh air from the surface and allowing poisonous and explosive gases to escape. The shafts were often the only thing that prevented a man from dying every time he went to work, but as we'll soon see, they didn't always work. The United Coal Company's Naomi Mine was located just outside of Fayette City, Pennsylvania, on the east bank of the Mongahela River in the southwest part of the state. There were 200 men who labored in the Naomi each day. They worked hard, hammering at the seam on several different shifts. The mine had not been without incident. Earlier in the year, there had been a small explosion caused by a buildup of methane gas the miners called the Black Damp. Only a few men had been injured and a new air shaft was sunk to clear the gases, so no one expected anything like that to happen again. 
but of course, they were wrong. On December 1st, 1907, 43 men and boys were in the depths of the Naomi mine. It was a smaller than usual shift because it was a Sunday, and so only those who needed the money badly enough to break the Sabbath had reported for work. Well, there was nothing ordinary about the day at first. Joseph Robish, known as Joe the Pumper, was making his rounds. He was the waterman. His job was to spray water on the floors of the tunnel to keep the coal dust down. If methane mixed with coal dust, it could be very dangerous. Just like an open flame in a mine filled with gas. You see, that evening, Joe decided to light his pipe on the way out of the mine. Unfortunately, he wasn't far enough outside when he did it. And at 7.26 p.m., the Naomi mine exploded. The streets of Fayette City filled with people as women, children, and off-duty miners ran to the scene of the accident. In a matter of minutes, a mass of people had gathered around the mine entrance. Their numbers so large that the first group of rescuers had to struggle to get to the mine. The air was filled with screams, sobs, moans, and curses as friends and family pressed in close to the mine entrance. They peered into the gaping blackness, which was belching a thick cloud of smoke, hoping to see the white faces of their loved ones emerge, but no one came out. A local newspaper painted a grim picture of the scene, writing of entombed miners who, like rats in a trap, were caught where the tons of earth and rock were heaved into the passage, completely blocking any possible chance of escape. Hope has been practically abandoned, and the final list will, it is feared, include every man who was in the mine when the explosion occurred. The scenes around the mine are heartrending. Mothers, wives, and sisters have flocked about the entrance to this veritable tomb since the first shock which told of the frightful disaster. A word of the explosion spread quickly and workers from other mines flooded in from all directions. Unfortunately, sightseers and the morbid curious also flocked to the mine, clogging the streets and roadways. The crowd grew so large the company had to call in 30 mine police officers to help rope off the area and control the mass of people so that rescuers could do their work. The prevailing opinion of the company was that agitated foreigners, as they called the men in their employ, might riot or just rush the mine in an attempt to enter and find the men themselves. Only one man had easily escaped from the mine. He'd been near the entrance when the explosion occurred. He'd stumbled out of the smoke and into the night air, then collapsed, dead from the poison gas he'd breathed as he escaped. The first group of nine rescuers to enter the mine were quickly overcome by the thick smoke and the methane. They had to be rescued themselves, pulled out in the nick of time. For hours after the explosion, ceilings continued to cave in, slowing rescue efforts and increasing the danger that the rescuers might also be trapped. The greatest threat, though, was the black damp, carbon dioxide, and methane from the explosion and the fire. The men soon realized there was no one to rescue. They could only recover the dead. But they could only do so by splitting into three shifts of 30 men each. They had to be rotated in and out because the gas levels were so high. Mine officials believed the crowd would go home if they gave them the bad news that no one underground could be alive, but this news had the opposite effect. Families refused to leave until their men were brought to the surface, and those who would come out of curiosity 
Well, they stayed with the ghoulish intent to witness the mangled corpses as they were recovered. It would be discovered that the initial explosion had killed about half the men and boys who were underground. The rest had died from the black damp. The men working furthest from the explosion had tried to walk out after hearing the blast. Many of these men were found where they had fallen. Others were discovered sitting on the floor, leaning against the tunnel walls with lunch pails in their laps. A few had been kneeling in prayer when overtaken by the gas. Their bodies were smudged with coal dust and soot, but otherwise looked as if they'd stopped to take a nap. The men killed by the blast were in much worse shape. Their bodies were charred, crushed, or blown apart. None were recognizable. In some cases, it was difficult to determine which scattered body parts belonged together. The bodies were left underground until a temporary morgue could be arranged in town. Three days passed before the families were able to identify their loved ones. Each family was allowed $40 by the company to bury their dead. And that was the only compensation they were given. The official cause of the explosion was an accident caused by leaking gases and an open flame. None of the miners lived to tell the tale, but one of them did manage to try and keep the same thing from happening again, even after his death. The Naomi was cleared out and reopened after the disaster, and the men who came to work there had an eerie story to tell. It was said that Pumper Joe, the notorious pipe smoker, was seen for years wandering Naomi's tunnels, looking gloomy and miserable, and until the mine eventually closed for good, his ghost did all he could to prevent another disaster. The stories claim that miners who wanted to smoke as they walked home from their shift would reach in their pocket for tobacco or a pipe and would find nothing there, even though they knew they'd had it when they left home in the morning. Some superstitious miners took to promising Pumper Joe they would never smoke in the mine if only he would stop taking their tobacco. But the tobacco continued to disappear anyway. Joe was evidently not the trusting type, or maybe he just wanted to remove the temptation. Either way, tobacco frequently missing from the pockets of the men who worked the Naomi mine. The Mononga Patch Town was located on the West Fork of the Monongahela River, about six miles from Fairmont, West Virginia. It was a larger town than most, but there were several mines from the Consolidated Coal Company that housed its workforce in the community of about 6,000. Mine number six and number eight were on the west side of the river, and mines one, two, three, four, five, and seven were on the east side, connected by a simple iron bridge. They were good places to work, as far as mines went. Mines number six and number eight were located directly under the town and both were fairly new, opening just a few years before December of 1907. Both mines had the most modern equipment and ventilation systems, fans that were so massive that on occasion, air moved at nearly 40 miles per hour, sucking the poisonous and explosive gases from the tunnels and keeping the temperature at a comfortable 60 degrees. Another modern advantage was the use of electric motor trains, which were used to replace most of the horses and mules in the two mines. The motor was like a short locomotive that passed easily through the low tunnels, pulling cars of coal. They usually pulled about 50 coal cars behind them, 
all of which had been filled by hand so they could dump them into barges or train cars at the surface. On the cold morning of December 6, 1907, hundreds of men and boys reported to work in the number six and number eight mines. They were miners, pumpers, motormen, trappers, slag pickers, tipplemen, blacksmiths, mechanics, mule drivers, and other support workers who were usually not counted on the roll. Officially, there were 478 paid workers in the mine that day, but a more reasonable estimate had the number between 650 and 700. Well, it was an ordinary day, except that the mine had been closed the day before. It was said that the mine was gassy, so the gates had been locked, but the workers believed it was more likely it had been closed to punish them for recent talk of union organizing. Regardless, the men were eager to make up for a day of lost wages. After being checked off the roll, each man collected a lard oil open flame headlamp for their cap, a ration of black powder, and a length of fuse. Then with their lunch pail in one hand and their pick and shovel over the other shoulder, they started down the long slope into the dark depths till they reached their work area. The coal was in seams along the walls of the mine. The days of swinging a pick all day long, chipping at the wall of coal, were long past. By 1907, miners were using small amounts of explosives to dislodge the coal and load it into the cars. They drilled into the wall, loaded it with powder, stuck in a fuse, and then tamped it down with clay or dirt to contain the blast. If done properly, the small blast would break loose enough coal for a miner to work for several hours without blowing up anything else. Well, if it wasn't done properly, well, it wasn't good. On that Friday, the men were in a hurry to start loading, making up for the lost day of work. Within a few minutes of starting their shift, hundreds of small blasts went off so quickly, it sounded like a drum roll in the depths of the mine. As a safety precaution, pumper carts routinely passed through the tunnels, spraying water to keep down the dust. It could be highly flammable, especially mixed with gas. Most of the men had a healthy respect for the dust, but there was no way to stop it. It was everywhere. Between the blasting, the hammering, the crushing, and the men, horses, and mules that were constantly moving about, the dust often swirled as high as a man's waist. Meanwhile, outside of the mine, the blacksmith, William Jenkins, was working in his shop when he looked up to see a motor and a string of loaded cars move slowly up the slope from number six. This was a common sight, but what happened next was anything but common. He heard a loud metallic snap and then saw the string of 18 cars go speeding past his shop in the wrong direction. He ran outside to hit a lever that would switch the rail to a siding, but the cars were moving too fast and he didn't make it in time. They picked up speed as they re-entered number six and began a 740-foot journey down the slope to the bottom. There was no way to warn anyone inside of what was coming. Well, this would have been bad enough and likely several people would have been killed by the crashing cars, but it was about to get worse. At the bottom of the slope, a group of inexperienced miners had just put together an especially large detonation. They wanted to blast loose enough coal to keep them busy for the rest of the day. So they drilled a hole that was deeper than normal and loaded in an extra large charge of black powder. What could go wrong? 
Well, the fuse was lit and then the 18 rail cars slammed into the tunnel. The explosion was so strong that when the earth moved, it was felt over eight miles away. Thick smoke and dust burst forth from the number eight mine as the entrance completely collapsed, tossing massive timbers and heavy pieces of concrete into the air. The boiler house and fan house were both ripped apart, killing everyone inside. A large part of the fan itself was blown across the river and became lodged in the mud along the far bank. Moments later, a second explosion occurred. As the earth shook again, dirty white smoke began billowing out from the entrance of the number six. As the ground heaved upward, streets and sidewalks in Monaga buckled and cracked. People and horses were knocked to the ground. Larger buildings shook and smaller ones collapsed. Not a single piece of window glass was left intact as a thick sooty ash settled over everything in town. Just like what had happened at the Naomi mine, people flocked to the mine entrances. Family members fled their homes and rushed to the scene in hopes of finding their father, brother, son, or friend. Rescue workers ordered them to get back, but the Italian, Polish, and Russian immigrants spoke little English, and they didn't understand. They finally had to be pushed back with ropes that were tied to ground stakes, creating a barricade. Even then, screams, Cries, wails, and weeping filled the air in a half dozen different languages, begging for news and for mercy from their gods. As the rescue effort dragged on, guards had to be placed around the mines to keep frantic family members from rushing the entrances in the hopes of finding their men themselves, a complete and utter impossibility given the blackness of the labyrinth beneath the earth. Rescuers worked in shifts, overcome by the smoke and gas, but unwilling to give up on the idea that someone, somehow, might be alive. When in the middle of the chaos, there was a moment of hope. Some of the miners knew about the sinkholes that plagued the land around the mine. It wasn't uncommon for children or animals to sometimes fall inside. Fearing that family members might try and sneak in through one of the holes, guards were dispatched to watch them. It was one of these same guards that heard groans coming from a sinkhole late on the afternoon of the explosions. A volunteer climbed down into the hole and pulled out a Polish man named Peter Urban from the mine. He'd been working with his brother Stanislaus when the explosion occurred. He'd been killed, but Peter survived and made it to the sinkhole. He was rushed to the hospital and while in shock, had only minor injuries. It was a miracle and gave hope to the families and the rescuers, but sadly, Peter Urban would be the only man to leave the two mines alive. Miners from other shift and from other mines volunteered to search the mine for survivors and later for the dead. Many had to be taken to the hospital after being exposed too long to the gases below. Three of the volunteers died before they could get out. They moved slowly. The 18 cars that had crashed at the bottom of the mine had to be untangled before the search could continue. Bodies were found torn apart and burned. One man was blown into pieces, but the watch in his vest pocket was still ticking. Others seemed to be simply asleep. One man sitting on a bench was still holding a cup of coffee in his hand, his head tipped back against the wall. When a rescuer moved his head forward, coffee poured from his mouth. 
The recovery teams found gruesome scenes around nearly every corner. To add to the horror of the scenes, the volunteers found the conditions inside the mine were nearly unbearable. The trapped heat was fierce and the lingering gas caused headaches and nausea. The stench of death was intolerable and had been intensified by the heat. Outside, the crowd continued to grow. The morbid curious had also descended on the scene, but most of the group was made up of mourners who continued their vigil around the clock. Frequently, the air was shattered with the screams and sobs of someone suddenly overcome with the horror of what had happened. These occasional outbursts came from frantic wives worn down from exhaustion, worry, and sorrow. The newspapers described shrieks of agony. An Italian woman awaiting word of the fate of her husband, her son, and her brother lost control and tore out her hair and with her nails cut gashes in her face. Unable to calm her, friends eventually carried her home. A Polish woman worked her way past the barriers and running wildly down the slope, broke past the guards in an attempt to breach the mine entrance and find her men inside. She was overtaken just in time and carried back behind the barrier by what the newspaper described as two stout men. Another woman tried to end her suffering by throwing herself into the river, but she was pulled from the frigid waters by several bystanders. One young woman lay down on the frozen ground and cried herself to sleep. She was carried home by her sisters. The people in the crowd were so desperate for news of their men and boys that any passing official or rescue worker was mobbed with women, begging and pleading for information. There was nothing anyone could say to them to ease their pain. There was simply no news to tell. Days passed. When the first bodies were moved, there was a near riot as people pressed in to see who had been found. After the ventilation system was repaired, work progressed faster. Dozens more bodies were found and removed to the surface. Mananga was unprepared for the disaster. More than 300 coffins were ordered from Pittsburgh and Zanesville, Ohio, but it wouldn't be enough. A temporary morgue was put up in a partially completed bank building. Family members lined up outside, desperate to walk the long rows of bodies, looking for anything that would identify their loved ones. Dozens of men went to work digging rows and rows of graves in the half-frozen earth. The rain and melting snow made everything even more difficult. Graves dug the night before were half filled with water by the next morning and had to be bailed out. Embalmers arrived from every surrounding town. They worked around the clock in shifts, preparing bodies for identification and eventually for burial. Coffins began arriving by train. The simple, unlined wooden boxes were stacked up in long lines in the street outside the morgue. When the morgue was filled, the overflow of bodies and coffins was lined up outside on the street. There was simply no more room for those that had already been prepared for burial, and the flow of bodies out of the mine continued. Graves were dug in long rows. Mine officials had originally planned to have long trenches dug for the dead, but this plan was violently opposed by the families who felt the dead should not share a grave. A new cemetery had to be started on a hill outside of town so that Protestants and Catholics could have their own burial grounds. A potter's field was also started there for the unidentified and for the partial remains. After the recovery effort was finished, the company announced 
that the official and final death toll was 361, making it the deadliest mine disaster in American history. However, this number is impossible. Even leaving out the support workers, the roll call that day was 478 men and only one, Peter Urban, had survived. In addition, volunteers had dug 620 graves in town even before all the bodies had been recovered. So how many really died that day? No one knows. We do know that the explosions left behind 400 widows and more than 1,000 orphans. The Consolidated Coal Company settled with the families at a price of $150 for each widow and $75 for every child under 16. They also allowed the families to continue living in their patch houses for an entire two weeks. The number six and number eight mines were reopened a few months later and a new group of men started working in them. They were no safer than they were before. Peter Urban, the sole survivor of the Monanga disaster, spent the next three months recovering from his ordeal and then returned to work in number eight. Peter remained in Monongah with his wife and family and fathered two more children. He was injured a few times over the years, including a broken leg and a sprained back, but each time he went back to number eight and back to work. Then nine years after narrowly avoiding death in the explosion, a large chunk of the ceiling collapsed in the room where Peter was working and he was killed on the spot. Mine number eight had finally claimed the only one that had gotten away. The Monaga disaster had a great impact on American coal mining history and on the people who lived in the town and worked the mines. Even today, decades after number six and number eight were closed down. Some men who had worked number six or number eight for years, or others who were transferred from one of the six other Monaga mines found reasons to stay out of the mines or just quit and moved on to mines and other coal fields. There were too many dead miners still roaming the older sections, they said. The men working in the old sections would hear their names being called out, and when they turned, no one would be there. Miners would on occasion walk past old inactive areas and would hear arguing, laughing, or sometimes even singing. Those rooms would always be empty. Some went home and told their families of following a small group of three or four miners down a tunnel or through an old crossing and seeing the men just disappear. One man claimed to see some miners walk right through a pile of slate from a ceiling collapse that had been caused by the explosion. The men just melted through the stone, he said. The men lost in the explosions were not the only things haunting the mines. There were horses and mules too. The animals were often used in the deep sections of the mine or in mines that did not have electric motors that the mines in Monaga had. They were used to haul the loaded cars up the slope, making the round trip in and out of the mine many hundreds of times every week. They would enter the mine in the morning and not breathe fresh air again until late at night. There were dozens of them in the mines on the days they exploded and all of them were killed. When the recovery efforts were started, the carcasses of the horses were left for last, cut apart, and burned. They were too heavy to haul to the surface. And perhaps because the mine became their makeshift tomb, their spirits have remained behind. 
A few years after the disaster, a group of men on lunch break in the mine reported the sounds of horses galloping toward them from one of the nearby tunnels. They could see nothing, but the sounds of hoofs became louder and louder as they came nearer to them. The men stirred, becoming nervous, then panicked as the horses came closer, still unseen in the blackness of the tunnel. Finally, the hoofbeats were upon them. The miners pressed themselves tightly against the wall, sure they were going to be trampled, but the hoofbeats passed by them, growing fainter as they faded away in the tunnel beyond. Every man working in the section that day heard the horses. None of them ever doubted that the horses were really there, even though they couldn't see them. They told others who laughed at first until they experienced it for themselves. They heard the galloping too. In fact, the horses continued to run through that section of the mine once, twice, or even three times a week for a very long time. And who knows, they may be running still. But the Mananga mines have been closed for a very long time now. And whatever is occurring beneath the earth there is a secret that will never be revealed. Nestled in the foothills of the Alleghenies and on the banks of a fast-moving river was the Dar Mine. Owned and operated by the Pittsburgh Coal Company, it was just one of many mines in the area. There was nothing to set this mine apart from the others. It wasn't especially deep or large, and its workforce was made up of only 450 men and boys on a single daily shift. The men who worked in the mine lived in a patch town called Van Meter. Well, most of them anyway. It had company houses and a company store, and everyone who rented a house from the coal company had to live there. Oddly, though, the men from the Dar Mine also lived in another town, Jacobs Creek, which was just across the Yaghany River from Van Meter. The houses in Jacobs Creek weren't owned by the company. They were privately owned by the miners. The location of this second community caused a bit of a problem for the mine. The nearest bridge was two miles away and the river was too fast and rough for a ferry crossing. So the company built a crude cable car they called a Sky Ferry to get the men to work. It was a simple box that held six men at a time. It was hung on cables that were strung high across the river and the men pulled themselves across to get to work each day. If that sounds dangerous to you, you'd be correct about that. But as it turned out, not as dangerous as working in the mine would prove to be. By December 1907, the mine had been experiencing problems with gas for months. The mine was equipped with a large ventilation fan, but it wasn't working well. Pockets of gas were settling throughout the mine, causing dangerous conditions. So dangerous that two of the mine's officials actually resigned their positions because of the increased danger to the miners. The mine's foreman, William Campbell, told his wife that if something wasn't done about the gas soon, that one of these days he wouldn't be coming home. Campbell badgered mine officials for a solution, finally threatening to quit like the other officials if something wasn't done. Well, this did the trick, and plans were made for a new ventilation shaft. Work began and progressed quickly. Unfortunately, though, that shaft would never be completed. On the morning of December 19th, Campbell kissed his wife goodbye and started walking to work. He would never see his wife again. He joined the other 225 men and likely another 200 support workers as they went into the mine. Campbell's office was in a small shanty at the bottom of the slope. 
It wasn't a bad walk, especially compared to most mines. The Dar mine was located at a high elevation. Instead of dropping deep underground, it pushed forward into the foothills that loomed above the town. Work began just as it did every day. The men quickly settled into their routines. Right away, the black powder blast started going off, echoing down the long, dark tunnels. The coal was blasted out of the seam and the coal cars were being filled. The clock ticked through the morning, closer to lunchtime. What most of the miners didn't know was that earlier that morning, one of the supervisors had roped off an area of the mine where gas had settled. As some of the men sat down in that area to eat lunch, the open flames of their headlamps burning in the darkness, that trapped gas ignited. The explosion caused the ground to shake so hard that people felt it for miles in every direction. The water in the river outside of the mine lifted straight into the air and splashed over its banks. Glass shattered in every window in Van Meter and Jacobs Creek. A huge cloud of dirty white smoke and ash billowed out of the mouth of the mine as it spat out broken timbers, stones, and twisted pieces of iron. And deep inside the mine, the air was burning. Men screamed as they were torn limb from limb by the blast. Others were thrown by the concussion, shattering bones against the tunnel walls. When word of another disaster spread, more than 100 experienced miners rushed to Van Meter. Most of them worked for the same company, but in different mines. The men, after hearing the explosion, dropped their tools and rushed to the rescue. They didn't ask to leave. It was just common knowledge that the first few minutes and hours were critical. The mine gases were deadly and anyone who survived the blast had to be pulled out immediately if they were going to survive. The rescuers at the Dar Mine became the first in history to use breathing apparatuses during their recovery efforts. Even with the air thick with poisonous gas, the men wearing respirators were able to work a full two hours before they had to be rotated out of the mine for fresh air. Even so, the danger to the rescue teams was so high that only unmarried men were allowed into the mine after the rock and debris were cleared from the entrance. The recovery teams pushed inside through the darkness and smoke and found something unexpected about 200 feet from the entrance. A survivor. Tom Williams had just been re-entering the mine with an empty coal car when the explosion happened. With only a moment to think, he jumped into the coal car and curled up into a ball. Most of the energy from the explosion had been expended by the time it reached him, but he undoubtedly would have been killed without the protection of the car. Everything around him had been destroyed. Tom turned out to be only one of two survivors. The other was Joe Mapleton, a pumper who was found stunned and disoriented near an air shaft. He had somehow come through it with only cuts and bruises. After he was bandaged up, he joined the rescue effort. The first corpses were found about 5,000 feet into the mine. This was the location of William Campbell's office shanty. The first men who entered the structure were stunned by the gruesome sight. The bodies of four men were huddled together on a makeshift bench along one wall. They were propped up against each other, each body holding the other in place with their eyes open wide in surprise, but they were otherwise unscathed. The fifth man found there was William Campbell. His body was sprawled on the floor. His head had been torn off by the blast. One team after another entered the mine, 
working in shifts. The dead were left where they had fallen. They were looking for survivors. The dead could wait. Besides that, company officials had ordered that no bodies were to be carried out of the mine until the crowds outside had gone home. But of course, that would never happen. As the rescuers pushed deeper and deeper into the mine, the damage increased with every step. By the time they reached the deepest parts of the mine, the pockets of gas were so intense that the respirators were useless. The huge ventilation fan was repaired and gangs were sent in to board up rooms and tunnels that were found empty to redirect fresh air into the furthest reaches of the shaft. It took two days to find all the bodies that were intact. There were still scores of body parts that matched to no one. Hands, feet, arms, legs, even heads. And those weren't the only gruesome discoveries. One man found his best friend in the mine, his arms missing and his head horribly crushed. Four men had taken cover in a string of coal cars. The blast hit the cars and the men with such force that some of their clothes were blasted through the wood of the car and particles of fabric became embedded in the coal seam. The explosion had ripped along the mine ceiling. The blast had surged through the tunnels with such force that men standing upright had the tops of their heads sheared off where they stood. Salvage teams found so many limbless and headless bodies that many of them became so overwhelmed they had to be helped back to the surface. Most refused to return down into the darkness. When the men came out of the mine, they found that the crowds outside were much smaller than at other mines where disasters had recently occurred. There was a simple reason for this. There was no place to stand. Just outside the uphill entrance were the Pittsburgh and Lake Erie railroad tracks, and just a few feet beyond that was the river. It was easy to hold the crowd back, especially since poison gases were still seeping out into the air. The scene across the river at Jacobs Creek, though, that was another story. Large groups had begun to appear, fighting to see what was happening on the other side of the river. In addition to the families and friends of the trapped miners were newspaper reporters and a massive number of, of course, the morbid curious. It was estimated that at least 25,000 people had turned up at the scene. The police had to be called to control the growing crowd and they had their hands full. Frequent fights broke out as people pushed and shoved for a better view. Not only that, but many in the crowd began complaining about the foreigners who had taken all the jobs at the mine, which made little sense because if the so-called foreigners had not been working there, these same complaining people would likely be dead instead of them. But things became so heated that in the days that followed, at least 400 surviving miners and their families left the area. Meanwhile, Dr. C.A. Wynn, the county coroner, was trying to figure out how to deal with the disaster. He was a simple doctor and had no idea what to do. However, he was aware of all the unidentified bodies that had been left after the recent Monanga disaster. He didn't want that to happen at Dar, so he ordered that nobody would be released for burial until all the corpses had been identified. Well, it seemed an impossible task, but he was determined to stick with it, even after protests by the families. The authorities were constantly harassed in the days that followed by friends, families, and townspeople, wondering when they were to be allowed to give the bodies a decent burial. A huge circus tent was set up near the company office and served as a temporary morgue. 
The unidentified were laid out side by side under the tent while families walked up and down the long rows, hoping they would be able to recognize something, anything that would allow them to rest easy, knowing their loved ones could finally be buried. It was a horrific scene, but one that got worse as more time passed. The stench of death became so strong that allegedly could be smelled for a mile in every direction. Rescue workers began to leave because of the odor and complaints about the odor of decomposing flesh appeared in dozens of newspaper stories. But Dr. Wynn refused to give in. His system was working. There were many reports of people who didn't recognize a battered face, but knew a shirt, a belt, a pair of pants, or special stitches that had mended a tear. This continued until December 25th. Finally, on Christmas, Dr. Wen released all the bodies, identified or not. There had been 247 bodies pulled from the ruins of the mine. The rest would never be found. In the wake of the disaster, the Pittsburgh Coal Company posted a notice that payday was being postponed by one week because of all the confusion. In truth, it was done so that none of the dead men would be accidentally paid. The company did announce in all the national newspapers, of course, that not only did it order coffins for the dead, but it was paying for all the funerals and purchasing a section in Mount Olivet Cemetery as a mass grave for the unclaimed and the unidentified dead. Well, this looked good to the public, but what they didn't know was that the company required each of its employees to buy a $150 life insurance policy. When the policies were paid out, the company deducted the cost of the dead miner's burial and coffin before turning the balance over to his family. Well, the funerals began and continued for days. The unknown and unclaimed men were buried in the company's mass grave, although they never placed a stone on it or marked the site in any way. That was finally done two years later by the Hungarian American Federation. The coal company couldn't be bothered. After the last funeral was held and the last body was buried, silence fell over the area where the Dar mine was located. But quietly, the coal company began cleaning up the ruins and the mine was reopened in 1910 although the darn name would never be used again. It was now banning number three. Work continued for a few more years without incident, and then in 1919, the old mine was closed again. It remained untouched until 1950, when it was briefly reopened, the last of the coal reserves were removed, and it was closed one final time. Although sealed off decades ago, thousands of people still pass by the darn mine site every year. The Pittsburgh and Lake Erie railroad tracks that once passed the entrance running alongside the river have since been turned into a biking and walking trail. Those who pass by the site today would have no idea that anything was ever located there if it wasn't for a few foundations and retaining walls that remain nearby, hidden among the trees. Van Meter is gone, the Sky Ferry has been forgotten, and only a scattering of rundown houses remain where Jacob's Creek was once located. If you look hard enough, I can tell you firsthand that an old Dar air shaft can still be found on the hill above what was once marked by the mine entrance. A few people have ventured into the tunnel a short distance before having second thoughts and returning to the safety of the surface and to the daylight. Climbing down an air shaft in the dark 
into a crumbling old mine tunnel that still holds pockets of poisonous and explosive gases and was the site of hundreds of violent deaths doesn't seem to be the sort of adventure that would make most people comfortable. Although the river trail officially closes at dusk, there are still plenty of people who use it after dark. Many report that the area around the old mine has a strange atmosphere. The air feels heavy and thick, and there have been numerous reports of odd things happening. They're mostly sounds. The sounds of men arguing and voices raised, angry, confrontational. The voices are clear, but no one can determine where they're coming from, and no one can understand them either. They speak in languages from Eastern Europe, where so many of the miners who once lived here came from. One night, a young man and some friends decided to camp nearby for the night. While gathering some wood for a fire, he heard footsteps in the trees behind him. He looked back, expecting to see an animal or one of his friends, but there was nothing there. When he turned back to gather up some wood, someone whispered harshly in his ear. Oh God, the voice moaned in agony. He decided to camp somewhere else that night. Well, I hope these stories of heartbreak, pain, and lingering spirits have whet your appetite for the many tales of horror that haunt America's coal mines. There are many more. Nature can be an unforgiving mistress when she turns against us, something that I hope those of us who are allowed to live on this earth will keep in mind in the years to come. If she is mistreated, who knows what might happen next? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks for the first part of one of the greatest American survival stories of all time, a tale of hardship, heroes, and the horrors of cannibalism. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language Better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, don't, don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? At Parker, 
Our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season six of the podcast, Woods and, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked. Dark and Wicked. <laughs> yes, I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, vocal actor, and <laughs> yeah, founder right. of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. <laughs> yeah, I, I had vocal actor. I had, I posted, did you see my post in the in the uh, Patreon thing the other day that if you tune into the last Moonlight Murder episode that you can hear me do like, you know, farmer voices from the early 1900s. Oh, no, I don't know no, why I, I did those, but I, didn't see it. I thought it would be funny. And did, um, did you listen to to the episode? Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I put a, I put a yeah. bunch more sound effects in there. That's great. I mean, yeah, it sounded I mean, great. I was happy I, with it, except for my, you know, corn pone voices <laughs> although i guess they fit but and it was fun to do but yeah, yeah people have been saying <laughs> they like the sound effects i feel like i've been getting better at them like i've re- i've been like painstakingly going over these and like realizing it's so hard to find a sound effect of wagon wheels rolling over uh, vocals that makes sense of like i know this is wagon wheels rolling. i know, you know, you know, I know. What I mean? well and, and you know <laughs> and, and unfortunately an Iowa farm story from 1900 calls for a lot of people walking on wooden floors and <laughs> wagon wheels because it's like, what other sound effects do we have? Well, we had some wood chopping, you know, um, right. that kind of stuff. It's kind of hard to come up with um, ideas of what to stick in there. So yeah. it's, it's not, not really, this is all new to me too, because I've sure. never had to do that before. Uh, so. Did you, okay. Did you like, and this is like, Troy and I just straight up talking business right now. Did you like the photograph sounds? Because I didn't know if they were too modern because I don't know what those cameras sounded like. I know that was the thing. And I wasn't sure how to describe it to you. Uh I mean, they worked fine. I mean, it got the point across. Yeah. Uh, But I think think they probably should have been. You ever seen one of those movies where the guy's got the thing over his head and he's holding up a thing in his arm and and then it, it goes off and it goes poof like that like right, a right, cloud right, of right. smoke that but i didn't know how to describe that to you in a text message or sure. on the or on the script i'm like well, in text, how do i tell way. him what the hell that sounds like <laughs> you know? yeah and so so i tried something because because i what i did troy is i downloaded a bunch of like photograph sounds and i went through and basically i took everyone out that wasn't like because I was like, oh yeah, right. That's okay. not right. Yeah, you knew but it wasn't going to be that. I got the point across, but I, I feel like any aficionados out there. Would be oh, like, I know. Oh, I that's know. a. It's okay. Yeah. I think it works fine. And and right now, no one knows what we're talking about if, unless they're Patreon people. Anyway. Unless, yeah. <laughs> uh, here we are e- eating this up. But if you want to find out, go find out because 
uh, we are having a good time with the series. And people seem to be really loving it. Like people yeah, we're, we're yeah. reading so many comments on the Patreon threads about like, hey, I'm yeah. really loving this series. Like I'm yeah. it's just an addition to the podcast. I'm loving the sound yeah. effects. I'm loving the it's story. It's just a like, spin-off. That's the way I look at yeah. it. It's a spin-off of the regular podcast. Yeah. You know, so people are loving it. Uh, well, okay. So aside from the additional work that you're making me do, well, me they, too. What like well, you too. every week what, now? So so what are the other what what's the other additional work that you're doing with the up? Well, events that we have going well, on. I mean, I've got tours and events. Uh, I mean, it's pretty much every weekend, um, you know, and then of course the conference is coming up, which has been sold out for a while, but we're really gearing up for that coming I'm in sorry. June. I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll talk more about it as it's happening. Cause I know you're going to be recording again, doing We're some recording. stuff. I got my hotel book. I got yeah. my equipment. I got yeah. my ideas. I got my banners. I, dude, I have, I don't even think you understand the amount of prep I already have done awesome. for this thing. Well, I'm great. ready to rock and roll. So if you're at I the know. Well, and you don't it's a, it's a lot of prep, believe me. <laughs> I do understand True. that part right, of it. You, so we've got that coming up, but plus I've been doing the other stuff too. We have, I have river road tours, you know, gosh, through the summer, all the time, at least every other weekend, sometimes more. And then um, I've got, um, you know, din the dinners too. So like this weekend, uh, I'm doing one on HH Holmes. I mean, it's, I mean, you guys are, when you hear this episode, it'll already have happened, but I'm doing one on HH Holmes and the weekend after I'm doing one on the uh, American Witch one again, I'm doing, which we kind of covered some of that sure. earlier in the season in the podcast. Um, and then, man, I've just got a whole list of stuff coming up after that. The Limp family, uh, St. Louis exorcism, like one more time in beginning of July. And then I won't do it again until fall. We have Wyatt Earp, Lizzie Borden, a bunch of stuff coming up. So um, all that stuff at River Road Tours, too. And we've got a lot of those. Uh, dinnerandspirits.com, easy to find. Um, you know, we've got our other tours going, Alton, Springfield, Chicago, all those tours are going, uh, AmericanHauntings.net, just the usual websites, the stuff that we normally do. You can find all that stuff there. And um, don't forget, though, with, with the Dinner and Spirits stuff, um, use your use the podcast discount. We're more use than it. happy to have you guys use it. So um, we that's why we put it out there. You just have to put in podcast when you check out and you automatically get 10%. That's literally all you have to do. You make money listening to a free podcast. You make so. money. <laughs> Troy, what what I'm putting you on the spot here too. This is not that's something okay. you and I have talked about. What, what have been some of like the biggest differences you've noticed with events or guests or even yourself or anything like um, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic around like the events? Are you finding you're like getting more people wanting to do crazier things like do the river road tour? Are you finding people just just want to go out to a simple kind of dinner? Like, what are you finding people want? To it's do it's more? both. I mean, it's been both. I mean, we've been busy. Um, most of the events we've done have sold out before they get here. So mm -hmm. people would just want to get out and do stuff. I mean, it's, you know, we spent like two years mostly cooped up. I mean, not completely. We still were able to do a lot of stuff because sure. we don't have big, massive things. We're not throwing, a, you know, stadium concerts here. So, right. you know, but um, I think people are, are wanting to get out and do stuff. We're, we're seeing it. I mean, we've had, you know, a lot of uh, returning people who come into stuff. And we've had a lot of brand new people coming you know we've made a lot of changes a lot of upgrades we've upgraded our you know our ballroom at the mineral springs we I love it so changed much. the menu completely we got a buffet now it's not a plated dinner anymore people can pick and choose and it's a massive buffet so i mean there's just it's just been 
it's been fun. You know, it's been fun to get to do new things and, you know, return to some of our old stuff and meet new people. And I think people are just want to get out. They really mm -hmm. do. So hell yeah. And, and we have a way that they can do that. So yeah, that, that's awesome. And the nicer the weather gets, the more fun it gets. Oh so, man. I've been, not I mean, that we didn't do them all through the winter. We did, but still. Sure. sure yeah. Know. Don't forget just cause it's not spooky season. Doesn't mean yeah. that we don't do spooky things all throughout yeah. the year. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk about um, a listener review here. So this review is titled uh, book Troy might like. And so Troy, you, if you don't have this book, I'm going to be flabbergasted, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens. This comes from gray Eagle M and it says, hi guys, I enjoy your podcast, but I'm writing today because I just finished a book. I thought Troy might like it's called his bloody project by Graham McRae Bur Burnett. Uh, while in Scotland researching family history, Burnett came across papers regarding a murder in the 1800s. The bulk of this book is an account by the accused about his life and what led up to the crime. The rest is statements from people uh, he knew or who knew him in court records. I found it fascinating. So that's the first part of the room. Troy, have you okay. ever heard of that? Have you ever heard of that book? Okay. No, actually, I haven't. Um, but I don't read a ton. I love like. As, as British I look at mystery thrillers and TV books behind you, I know, I, but I don't read a ton of um, nonfiction stuff as much, but I oh, will sure. check this out. I'll take sure. a look at it. It sounds pretty cool. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so it says, um, as long as I, I in quotations, I hope I have your attention. Sorry, Troy and I've both fallen asleep. No, so as long <laughs> as I have your attention, the quest was posed about what about the Black Dahlia keeps our attention. I would guess it's because of the name. It was if it was known as the Elizabeth Short murder, it would have faded into obscurity. But with the mysterious and romantic name like Black Dahlia, it sticks in people's minds. And I think there is something to that. And like I see that yeah. meme all the time. It talks about had we called um, Richard Ramirez like the small, the, the smelly teeth stalker. You know, like nobody yeah. wouldn't care about yeah. him anymore. But yeah. do, do you think there? I, I don't actually know when did the Black Dahlia part come into play. That was that was during. Um, it was in the middle of all the publicity surrounding the murder um because the movie the blue dahlia had been out recently um it was um veronica lake was in it um and um I can't, alan ladd and it was just a crime thriller but it was it was popular it was in a, you know an la noir movie um and i guess i i i've i had always heard that some of her friends and people she knew called her the Black Dahlia because she always dressed in black. But I don't I think it was a reporter. I mean, it's <laughs> I don't think it, it sounds was like friends. a reporter. Thing. It does sound like a reporter. I mean, you know, when you when you think about all those like um, mob guys from the 20s, you know, all the nicknames, you know, uh, yeah. Joe, the batters, uh, you know, all these, it was reporters that came up with those names. It wasn't other mobsters. Sure. But sometimes the guys would like them and they'd use them. You know, it's kind of like how good um, nicknames. Yeah. It's kind of like how the Godfather influenced real, you know, mob guys. I mean, they, they didn't do the things in the Godfather, but when they read them, they're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. We should do that. And sure. it, so, and I think it's the same way with, with the names. And I think that, you know, it was a reporter who came up with the idea, I'm pretty sure, that to call her the Black Dahlia, and it stuck. And yeah. I'm sure that that is the reason why, or one of the reasons why it stuck with this. Because while it's horrible, don't get me wrong, I think we talked about this back at the time when we were doing those episodes. Um, I, I, it was a horrible murder, but would we have remembered a single murder like that? Because as we talked about, 
there were a couple of dozen murders of women around that time. Hollywood star. There were only a couple of them whose names that we even wrote remotely remember. And yeah. that was because like Georgette Bauerdorf, that's only because she knew Beth. I mean, that's the, you know, otherwise most of those people, we don't even remember their names. Sure. So I'm not sure what the difference was other than she was pretty. Um, she was, you know, took attractive pictures and they gave her a nickname. And, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was pretty horrible murder, but I, I agree. I'm not sure we would have remembered her without the name. Sure. Are you telling me America remembers the names of pretty white girls that are killed because that? Yeah, go figure, huh? <laughs> so Hard if my friends gave me a nickname, it would be like Cody the Schnozbeck. Right. Yeah, it would. It no would. one would remember that shit. Yeah. Um, speaking of Black Dahlia stuff, I know that like I, to get a little bit more serious here, I know that we we talked about one of my favorite death metal bands back in the day, the Black Dahlia. Murder. No, I saw this. And yeah, the, their singer, uh, Trevor Sternad, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but yeah, he he's passed away. And I'm, he was I'm only 41, even, man. You're right. And I'm, yeah. I'm not even making a, a joke about this, but RIP. Mm -hmm. And I feel like since we talked about him on the podcast and he was a big influence in a lot of the bands that I love, oh, yeah. a lot of the bands I listen Absolutely. to. And if basically all I can say is if you feel like hurting yourself, please don't do that. Please yeah. call somebody. Please yeah. call anybody, text somebody, do yeah. anything. And, Great. Yeah, just don't do that. I know. Uh, now that we're ending on that light note, <laughs> yeah. are you ready to dive in? Sure, sure. Uh, you call this the deadliest month. So coal mining is a super dangerous job, and it's created yeah. a lot of deadly drama. So between the late 1800s and early 1900s, at least 75,000 men died out east. Miners don't tend to live past the age of 40. This made me really, like this whole episode made me really think about um, in, in this time period. We could go back earlier, but that's not what the episode's about. But the crazy things that were done to build, like to build this country. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and From the Brooklyn Bridge to the railroads to and, thousands and thousands of people died to build the, I guess you'd call it the infrastructure of the company. Sure. Yeah, and, and that's, and I mean, we're, that's not, we're not even talking about slavery and the things before, yeah, and it's yeah. just up till this point. I'm wondering, do you think there was a a worse job ever than being a miner with the no. way you described it. No, that'd be the and worst. You know, what's great. What, what the thing about this, and that's the, when you said you called this the deadliest month, I had to, I had to just pick a couple of stories and they're all from the same general area. There's and they all happen around the same time because there were, are so many. Yeah. I have dozens and dozens of coal mine disasters. Sure. I mean, one happened right in the town where I grew up. I think you've heard me tell that story. Which one? Uh, there was a mine that that in the late 30s that um, that collapsed. There was an explosion in the mine in the town where my parents still live and killed like, I don't remember, like 90 some guys out of a town of like 2,500 I mean, it was a lot of people. Everybody knew somebody that died in that mine, including the town Santa Claus. And it happened like the day before Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Yeah, it was really grim. And so you killed Santa. Yeah, yeah, right. I know. Oh, right. Fuck. Uh, but I mean, so in all of them, almost all of the ones that I know that I've collected have ghost stories because, I, you know, that's why I that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about the superstitions in mines, because there are ghost stories connected to like everyone. Yeah. And, and, and so I'm going to get into some of the superstitions here, but one of the main things I want to talk about is if we think that ghosts 
potentially come from traumatic history and just, you know, scary places in general and stuff like mines seem to be the perfect place. No kidding. Like, like, no, the most perfect location for this scary, terrible, these things to happen and, and people to be like, let's not repeat this history. I'm going to try to warn people. And I mean, it's, it's dark, it's gloomy. Death still looms there. Like I can't yeah. think of a more perfect place. No. Have you ever been into a, an old mine that maybe not used anymore? Only like a little bit, just like a, a kid kind of exploring, playing around. But like, don't get me wrong, you got you you got my rocks off here, and that's like that's a pun. Um, <laughs> thinking about like jumping into some of these, but but I haven't really been to any like serious one. And and also when we talk about it later, but like I think I would get, and I'm I think I'm pretty brave and logical and everything. I think I'd get a half mile, maybe a mile in, and be like, fuck this no, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. getting out um and i because i just i had i grown up around them i'd probably play in them a little bit more but yeah, I, maybe i don't, I don't know, know or maybe man. not like, it seems yeah. bad but 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 well, i mean what about you and like i mean i want to hear about your experiences with your personal stuff with um the the darmine and stuff and all that what we talk about but yeah yeah what's your experience with with mine well i mean i've been in a few i i've been in a couple that have been like reopened to show you what it was like kind of okay. thing um which has been interesting i mean so you've got to wear a, a hard ass and the whole bit out and die. yeah and you know when i've been in mines with you know gas issues where you keep you know um that you stupidly light matches to make sure that you can still breathe sure, i know right, right? right. You bring uh, it but i mean i've been in there and you're thinking well this is really dumb why am i doing this you know um but yeah, so I, I've been in a few and they are scary places. I mean, they are, there's something about, and caves are the same way. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, they're really cool when they're all well lit and everything, but you know, to go in some, and when I was much younger and smaller than I am now, um, <laughs> I used to do a lot of caving. Um, I used to go crawl through caves and stuff. I don't, I don't do that anymore. Should I get stuck? <laughs> no way. But I, mean, I was I, very, very skinny back then. So, you know, um, but yeah, that's, um, but I, I love the stuff. I still love to do the underground stuff and I love to go through caves that I don't have to crawl through, but there's something about being underground. That's just not, it's not the I same. don't know, man. It's just, it's just something. It's always fascinated me. All the stories about, you know, the hollow earth and underground cities and all that kind of stuff, because you know, we really don't know what's down there. It's kind of like the very bottoms of the ocean. Sure. You know, I mean, nobody's been down that deep. It's like that, uh, like that underwater movie. You know what I mean? I mean, Oh yeah. Yeah. That was freaky. And, and, but you could With see something twilight. like that happening. That's a, <laughs> you know, and underground, I don't know. It's just, um, you just never know what's down there. I agree. And, you know, I've been through mo uh, most of the River Road caves, even some that, like, aren't supposed to be right. there. But I'm sure I'm sure there are Maybe. a lot more. But, I'll, dude, I'll tell you right now, like, I wouldn't do most of that shit that I did when I was 17, 18. Oh, no. Like, I, I, it's too claustrophobic. It's too, it's too scary. Well, we're just like, not as stupid. I mean, yes, now we all now we have health care plans. We didn't back then, but we didn't think we needed them. Is now we that, do. Is it that we're not as stupid or not as brave? And maybe there is like Ooh. a weird kind of correlation. Oh, there. I think there is. Like yeah. I think. Or something. <laughs> yeah. But, but I but I often, you know, I definitely wonder about it. And that's why I did a video for Cinema Blend years ago where I talked about the scariest horror movies of all time. And I put the descent on there. Oh, yeah. A lot yeah. of that was because of the claustrophobia, yes, you know, and absolutely. Have to, like crawl through that stuff. And 
like I could like I don't even like there's some places in the city museum in St. Louis where I don't <laughs> like going in because I'm like I know they can get me out this happens little kids go through here but yeah. I'm like no 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 I no, know. no. I know, like, right it's oh that I don't know I, I guess maybe it is like a fear of death or jeez oh, I'm, I'm trying to a, a, an acceptance of or a lack of ignorance. I, I don't know. There is some sort of weird scale and balance thing that happens between like bravery and fear of death and, and things that kind of like yeah. wave in and out of you yeah. as you get older. And that yeah, sense of that adventure, unfortunately, yeah. well, yeah, because you don't yeah. want to die and you want to go on to pass right. genes or whatever, or just right. live <laughs> yeah. tell stories. I don't know. <laughs> you talk about the superstitions and they have a lot of them. And I understand why. Yeah, um, no kidding, right? Some of these superstitions even follow people home, though. And one of them I want to talk about, you said, don't put your boots on the kitchen <laughs> table. I think that this is a wife who's so pissed off about- I think so too. <laughs> And she, she's cleaning dust, mine dust all day. And this guy comes home, just plops his shit on the kitchen table. And she's uh -huh. like, you know what? If, if, I've heard that it's bad luck. If you do that, you're going to yeah. die again. Because she's like, I just cleaned this fucking table. I cleaned the whole house. And you come home and bring mine dust and methane. Into this yeah. House. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. Okay. But but so there there have been long superstitions about ghosts in these mines called Tommy knockers who were kind of playful, stole tobacco, stole this and that and the other thing. So it, wait, is that where the word came from for like revenge of the Tommy knockers? Like, I've never seen the movie. It would don't. Yeah. Don't, 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 don't the, the, the Tommy knockers in, if you're talking about the Stephen King, is it not revenge of the Tommy? No, it's just the Tommy knockers. Oh, God, the the book that. is so, so, Okay. It was like when he was like doing like, as he will admit, this is not me slandering one of my favorite authors of all time. Wait, he's doing a bunch he of drugs. tell you he was doing a lot of coke then. And well, yeah, so. He talked about his drug use and stuff. Yeah, he's, okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah, he's cool. um, I mean, he freely admits the book does not make a lot of sense in places, but the movie's terrible. I mean, really terrible. I've seen, I just remember the imagery from it, but he, hey, he said yeah. the same thing about. But it's it's just the name because they're aliens in, spoiler alert. They're oh, aliens remember, in the book and the movie. I remember that, but that's why These I was are ghosts. like, is this where the name came from? I didn't. Well, I'm sure that's from. where the name came from. And I think that it's, it's referenced in, okay. uh, in the book. Um, but the, 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 the idea that Tommy knockers came from Wales and, and Cornwall and okay. they were mine. That's where all the mines are in England. And they, uh, you know, said that when you'd hear the knocking inside the, the mine, that it was the ghosts of miners who died and they called them Tommy knockers. Was it the ghost of Tommy or something? I, it's a good question. So, but anyway, they brought it over here with them. And so, and you know, you actually find a lot more of that. I mean, there is, you do hear it out East, but mostly it was like a Colorado thing is at least as far as I've found. Okay. It seems to be an, a, more of a Western mine kind of, um, you know, idea. Superstition story, whatever. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Please don't tweet at me for calling it "Revenge of the Tommy Knockers." I don't. I only. <laughs> can only watch so many Stephen King movies. <laughs> but anyway. Um. Okay. Yeah. Workers were mostly immigrants who were kind of seen as expendable. We will. We'll get to that later. Um. Let's move on though to Patch Towns. This is um something I had heard about before. Um. And, and I learned this. I learned this from Renee originally really okay yeah renee renee i i owed i i put her in the credits to this episode because she well, did a lot i do uh, bring her up later in this episode um, yeah. but yeah yeah renee yeah. is amazing um I yeah wish my mom that whole because thing she um, introduced me to these locations all of these stores sure. were places she took me to yes and yes. Uh, she told me she taught me about patch towns because there are a bunch of them still around or at least they're not 
patch towns anymore because they're not mine communities. The US but dollar. It's the same houses though. And what the one the one thing and I there's so this is there's such a long episode with so many things I couldn't put in that I wished I could have, but I thought, well, we'll get to talk about some of them. But yeah. one of the, my favorite thing from patch towns that she showed me were um like the half houses. So you have a house, it's a duplex, and it, it won't be very big. It'll just be like a, you know, a, a two or three story kind of narrow house. Uh-huh. And two families will live there, but they split it down the middle because there's a dividing wall between them. And like, let's say one family wanted a white house and the other one wanted a blue house. Oh boy. They'll paint just their half of the house. I kid you not. And there's, <laughs> some of them are still like that. I no mean, there's shit. still houses that are like one half of one color and half the other. Did they um, even have like their own bathroom and kitchen? Was yeah, like yeah, yeah. Aired kind of thing. Yeah, or? yeah. It just be. It's just like a duplex, huh. you know. But it was the way for the mine company to put more people in less space, you sure. know. So, yeah, well, was, we'll learn the mine companies really, really gave a shit about. They are the workers. evil. They are. They were the evil of the period, and definitely anywhere around that area. Gosh, know? I mean, so, yeah. we could get into. I mean, I could. There's so much to get into all the massacres and things where they just bring in the Pinkertons and start shooting miners and <laughs> so, they would go on strike. All okay, kinds well, of stuff, well, man. Troy. Okay. So how did you decide to pick these three unique stories? Well, because they were, they were all ghost stories and they were all from the same month. And the fact, I mean, you look at this and you think how many people died in one month sure. in mines in, you know, in a fairly small area, it gives you a good overview of all the, the death that was occurring on a regular basis. We'll okay. have another mine story later on in the season, but it's uh, not actually in a mine, but it's connected to the mine. But we'll we'll get to that later. Got it. Oh, it's like an antlers kind of thing. Okay, got it. Got <laughs> not it. quite, but you know. So anyway, Patch Towns, unique kind of coal mining community. Um, workers were ob- uh, obligated to live there. They're paid with company script. This made things really fucked up if people, if things went sideways. They, yeah. Because they don't. And have they money. always did. This yeah. was just a way for, this was a way for the, the millionaires to keep their thumb on the people who work sure. for them. And sure. it wasn't just mines. It was all over the place. I mean, you know, George Pullman did this. Uh, outside of Chicago, the guy that invented the Pullman railroad cars, this is what he did too. He had a town that was supposed to be this orderly community where people could, you know, had to live in the houses and, you know, their rent was more than they made and all Mm -hmm. kinds of stuff. And they, you know, he literally was starving these people. And then they went on strike. And so then he, you know, kicked them all out of their homes. And I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very smart as far as a capitalist. I guess, yeah, in a capitalist way. Right. Um. So is this first mine, is it just literally, is it just Naomi? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Naomi. Okay. Naomi, Naomi mine. mine. So United Coal Company's uh, Naomi Mine located just outside Fayette City, Pennsylvania on the east bank of the Monica- Monongahela River. Monongahela. I had to I had to learn that one myself because I, I Renee it- lives right on it, lives I right pre- on that river. I mean, like- you could throw a rock practically. I've seen the, the river. I've seen the pictures from her place. Yeah. And oh so God. I, and I it took me to so long to try to figure out how I'm supposed to say that. <laughs> oh man, so, it's brutal. Uh, there'd been a small methane explosion earlier in the year. And basically um, there's this thing called the black damp that happened and they thought that they had fixed it. So can you explain to me a little bit more? I know I've, I, I know just about as much about mines as the general, general genuine curious person 
person, but they use vent shafts and fans to get gas out of my out of the mine, right? Because yeah. when you're digging that down into the ground like that, and you're digging up coal, which has gives off its own gas, mm-hmm. and then the gas will build up in the mine if you don't blow it out of there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you got to remember this is 1907. Sure. And even when we get to, I believe our next story, and they're talking about how it's you know, more advanced than most minds were. Yeah, yeah. That's still not, you not know, great. That's still not a really big thing. Um, so they did the best they could. They would put in all these ventilation shafts uh, throughout the hill, you know, it would dip right into the mine and then try to suck the air out that way. Sometimes they use big fans, anything to try to get the gas out and fresh air in. So you, keep these you just, guys alive. Do you just have to hope that the gas, the deadly gases are, lighter than the air in the mine. Yeah, you just, yeah. I mean, it, it, all it was, you got to keep it manageable. And, and because, I mean, they, they didn't really care if somebody got hurt, you, you were fired, you know, and, you know, so you, you hope for the best and, you know, but you don't want to have all your miners die, obviously, because you can't keep bringing sure. out coal. So you want to do what you can to try to keep you know, to keep people alive. And besides that, a, a gas explosion, as you see from every one of these stories, um, is not only kills the people, but practically destroys the mind for a There's while. Your money. And they always reopen them, but still. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So December 1st, 1907, you said 43 men and boys are in the mine. And I think it's important. You kept mentioning it's not just men, it's, it's boys. So how yes, young are young we boys? Talking? nine, 10 years old, sometimes a little older. And usually they wouldn't be on the payroll. And I kept mentioning that too. The support workers weren't counted. There's discrepancies. Yeah. Yeah. That's when they'll say, oh, you know, we're 400 people in the mine. Well, not exactly because there were all these other people with them because you were being paid by the amount of coal that you did. So if you brought your son in to work with you and he wasn't getting paid, but you got paid more because you could shovel a lot more coal that way that then he was a support worker. Sure. And so you might have 400 miners, but you've got, you know, all these other guys that are, you know, running the mules and the horses and the, you know, loading the wagons or whatever they're doing, you know? Um, so you'd end up with a lot more people God. than the official counts would say. And I was complaining about fucking soccer practice. So yeah, they're, right. and they're getting, I'm guessing at this point, I would imagine they're getting like, paid by the like cart load or something yeah it's usually by the weight um or oh, so they the, they could weigh it though back then well they would tell you they were weighing it is it way you more know, than it, guys it would duck? get paid for you know every two thousand pounds of coal and then they'd go oh but look all those shales in here too so oh, yeah fuck. we're gonna have to duck for that and these guys would always get screwed no no matter what they were getting screwed didn't matter how it worked so what you do is you throw a dead kid in the middle of the thing to get an extra <laughs> yeah, 40 pounds. Yeah. yeah. And we didn't even talk about the jobs that um, involved like the crushing machines and things. No, we did not. Uh, no, the crushing machines. To? And I've talked about that and I've written about it in some of my stuff, but the crushing machines were to pound the coal into smaller pieces. And then they had like young boys they would hire to do that. And their job was to lay down above a, on a board, above a conveyor belt, and then pull, pick off as much things that weren't coal out of, off the conveyor belt right before it crushed. You see what I'm saying? So Uh, nothing dangerous there at all. (laughs) I would have, I would have 100% been, 
I would have had to do that. I was 40 pounds until I was like, you know, seventh <laughs> yeah. grade. So gee, I would have, yeah, I would have been on the crushing machine uh-huh. in a so, heartbeat. Yeah. So kids, um, yeah, kids were definitely working in the mines. Gosh. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. December 1st, 1907. So Joseph uh, Robish, yeah. known as the, as Joe, the pl- uh, Pumper, Pumper Joe. Yeah, Pumper Joe was making his rounds as a waterman, somebody that would spray down water to keep the to try to keep the dust and everything at bay. On his way out, he's probably so which again adds to the wonderful working conditions. Sure. Not only are you deep underground, but there's all this dust, there's poison and uh, gases, there's explosive gases. Uh, mules going by, probably dumping a load next to where you're at. Yeah, uh, the bathrooms are like a wet spot in the in, in an unused uh. tunnel, which probably reeks. And then you got a guy riding around just m- turning everything into mud too. Yeah, so got to be great. great. On, great on his way out, he lights up his pipe at 7:26 p.m. I'm sure he's just like, "Fuck, okay, like long day, tired." Yeah. Like, well, and I just the story wanna... was the story was that he used to do this a lot. Oh, okay. Light his pipe on the way out, and the guys would yell at it. Oh, oh, you gotta wait. You cannot. There's gas in here. You cannot light that pipe. Sure. And um, and so you know, one day nobody yelled at him, and he lit it too early, and off it went. So blows up the mine. Yeah. Yeah. Only one man had easily escaped the mine, who then eventually died from the gas that he breathed in. The first group of nine rescuers had to then be rescued themselves. Eventually, they realized there is no one else left alive to rescue. Rescuers thought that the large crowd might disperse and go home once they heard the news. But <laughs> yeah, as yeah. we learned, this just doesn't happen. No. Uh, people, re- people refuse to leave until the corpses come out, come out which I, I kind of I don't get. blame them. Yeah. yeah. Um, about half of them died from the initial explosion, the rest from the black damp while trying to escape. Some of them were blown apart. Others looked like they were just taking a nap. Do you know how long? Okay. So say you're kind of far away. How, how long does it take to just die from this gas inhalation? Do you know? It's hard to say. I mean, no? there would be, I mean, sometimes not in the cases that we're talking about here, but um, there could be times where you've got a bubble of fresh air somewhere that, uh-huh. the, you know, or you're above or below the gas or whatever. And right. people will survive. I mean, there are, and, you know, in one of the Talk stories, there was a guy who just somehow everyone else dies. He's deep in the mind, but only gets a couple of bruises and scratches. Yeah. He wasn't I mean, it's, a just, it's a fluke. You know, you just never know, you know? Right. Okay. So it takes three days before families are allowed to ID their loved ones and they're paid just $40 to bury them, which is only, um, which was their only compensation. Yeah. Um, I, and then they not, got to move out of their house and find someplace else to live too. Right. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is independent of the miners and all that, but I just want this somewhere on record because I know thousands of people will listen to this. If for some reason I die in a, in a, in a mine, which is very unlikely or somewhere else, if it takes people, if people get in danger from recovering my body, and if my body's not going to harm anybody else, fucking leave me there. Dude. Yeah, I know, right? Like, like don't don't risk any resources or time or whatever. Like, just I'm already dead. Oh, see, I know? didn't know where that was going. I was going to offer, you know, oh. forty dollars. So <laughs> right. Forty dollar compensation. Yeah, I, to- I didn't know where we were going there. <laughs> I die, and for some reason, you evict my mom in two weeks. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and give her forty bucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, just don't recover me if that, if that's the case. I understand <laughs> the, the mind's a little different, but like. Yeah. Damn, that that's it just seems like a brutal story all around. Let's talk about the ghost stories for the Naomi mine. So 
It's cleared out and reopened. The new workers claim for years to see Pumper Joe walking around the tunnels looking gloomy and yep. miserable. And miners kept talking about tobacco kept disappearing. And it was said to be Joe looking at to present uh, to prevent another potential disaster. And I mean, yeah, that makes sense, man. I mean, like, you yeah. know what, if nothing else, just he could try to he could try his best to <laughs> yeah. Yeah. stop it from happening again. <laughs> oh boy. All right. Let's move on to our next um our next happy subject. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, these are all very cheery. So. Um monogama mine? But no, is this one's just Mananga. Mananga. Yeah, I think somebody got try, tired of trying to say Monongahela for the okay. river and they so they just called this town Mananga and okay. that was it. So. And I I do I do want to apologize for people who get mad at us for it for, for mispronouncing things and I do want to say Troy spells this shit out. I look it up. I put it into YouTube. We we are really really trying to we do well and this better. one I mean I try to put the pronunciations in there and believe me these were ones I had to learn so these I know I actually right, right. know these because they're you know Renee gives right. me the I just want to make sure everybody knows that we are we are really put we've heard your comments we've seen your your reviews on iTunes we are listening and we're trying <laughs> this is located about six miles from Fairmont uh, West Virginia. Eight mines of the Consolidated Coal Corporation in a community of about 6,000. Uh, much said, bigger town. Right, right. Much bigger town. You said these were the quote unquote good places to work and had the most well, modern, number six and number eight modern equipment. Yes. Yeah, so they had like things like electric motor trains. Right. December 6, 1907, 650 to 700 people went to work in mines number six and number eight. It's something I wanted to quote. You said, there were miners, pumpers, motormen, trappers, slag pickers, tipplemen, blacksmiths, mechanics, mule drivers, and other support workers. And this just reminded me of like um, a couple, like it reminded me of um, Fear and Loathing and West Side. So it's like zip guns, knives, whiz bangers, <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that kind of shit. Um, there, these were men eager, eager to make up for a missed day of work and wages because they had a, a day of work delayed. By this time, miners use a small amount of explosive to dislodge coal. So just full stop right there. What what do you think had changed where they had thought like what, because the company changed? wanted the coal moved faster? I understand. So they didn't that, want those guys just standing around hammering on coal seams in the wall. They wanted it out fast. So if they taught them, and I'm using that very loosely yeah, 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 yeah. on how to blow up the seam, then they could just shovel that stuff into cars. So they somehow figured out though, like this is a small enough blast yeah. that won't ignite. Yeah, things. they would give them, um, they would usually give them a ration and tell them how much of it to use at uh -huh. a time. And Who so if you only had out? a certain amount, you know, and, and a certain amount of fuse, then you couldn't make too big of ones. Unfortunately though, a bunch of these guys didn't know what they were doing, decided they would just kind of put all their stuff together and blow the whole wall at the same time. Well, wait a minute, Troy, a great idea. Can't you blow up this uh, the same amount of explosives with just as short of a fuse? Like, or am I misunderstanding how bombs work? No, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's still the same amount, but the idea was you guys are going to need, you need to do... You need to do, you need to have enough. I mean, I'm just throwing out a number here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've got to, you've got to have, you've got to be able to have five explosions. You got to blast five times into the wall during your oh, work okay, day okay, of okay. 12 hours or whatever the hell it was. Got it. So and um, so if you've got enough for five, you need to make the amounts you have work for five. Okay. You Unless you're idiots like those guys were and decided to put all their stuff into one wall. 
So in my thinking here, it's like you give somebody enough fuse to hang themselves sort of thing. So well, yeah, it essentially is because you are you are blowing up a wall in a mine filled with gas. Right. Well, so my thing is like you you can blow up five things, but you need to be able to run away far enough with this amount of fuse. And well, yeah, but you're, you're you're still talking about a pretty small amount of black powder, though. Oh, okay, okay. You're not right. gonna you're not talking about enough black powder to bring down the ceiling. This is just enough to blow a hole in the wall so you can dig it out. And so, okay. if you don't go in too deep, you know what I mean. If you only go in, you know, four or five inches, you a small yeah. amount of black powder. What you're going to do is blast a hole that's not too big. Right. I mean, it's, it's you gotta. You need to to stop thinking about like Wiley e. Coyote I'm and not those think- kinds of bombs. No, I'm no, not, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about small amounts here. It's just I, know, I, I think I'm just thinking that if somebody gives me only a certain amount of fuse, I just I don't know how much that would influence me. And I think that's why I'd be one of the first people to die in one of these. Fucking mm. fights. Yeah, you'd be one of the guys who says, hey, I got a good idea. Let's just work on the same wall all day. Guys, Let's use all our stuff and blow it up. If we combine all our resources, yeah, exactly. We will right, die and right. kill a bunch yeah, of people. Work that way. Um, so there's a lot of dust rolling around by this point. Blacksmith William Jenkins uh, watches a string of loaded cars moving up, uh, load cars moving up from uh, not mine number six, and I'm sure he's just sitting there doing his shit, and just kind of like, okay, yeah, that's kind of a typical thing. Yeah, sees it all day long. Yeah, yeah. and just all of a sudden he watches all the cars. <laughs> this doesn't go- normally see it go backwards <laughs> in the wrong direction rushes over tries to move a, a railroad kind of thing which i'm sure is probably rusted and all that shit. well and just going too fast anyway yeah, and going so too he fast couldn't even have got there in time and then at this point so dude i'm this is what i'm thinking about in that man's head he's the only one who knows there's nothing he can do what does that have to be like for you? I don't know, because, I mean, it wasn't like he could get on his cell phone and call somebody or no, get on no, a walkie-talkie. No. There's nothing he can do. And it's it's 740 feet to the bottom. That's like uh, a seven-story building. And, and it's now going there. so fast that uh, there's nothing he can do other than probably pray and run away from the entrance yeah. to the mine. That's yeah. what I would do, well, so, yeah. just in case. Run in the opposite direction. Yeah. So. At the same time, as Troy mentioned earlier, a group of inexperienced miners had just lit a huge bomb. This blast was felt for for eight miles away. This entrance, uh, the entrance to number eight collapses. Then a second explosion eventually happens. Um, Even small buildings collapse. Not a single window is left. This reminds me of like um, the stories I've heard about Oklahoma City bombing. Oh, yeah. Just like even though buildings miles away were okay, the windows were just fucking shattered. Right. Like the the rattling. My favorite part of this is when the the fan house blows up and the fan itself flies all the way across the river. I mean, and lands in the mud. And I'm thinking, you imagine if you saw that coming and you'd never seen a helicopter or anything in your entire (laughs) life because they haven't been invented yet. And you see this come thing come flying at you. Holy crap. You're some little kid just like fishing on the bank or something. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, Troy, if you were in that part of the world, like you maybe you've never seen a fan or anything like that. You might, you probably, it was invisible to you. You've never, it's like the Columbus ship. You just couldn't even see it. Yeah. Well, that's probably true. Yeah. It slams into the coast. Yeah. That would be wild. And just like, hope it doesn't hit your fish. You're trying to eat that day. But um, (laughs) anyway, people run to the entrance of the mine and you have a quote here that I, um, I love. You said, even then scream, cries, wails, and weeping filled the air in a half dozen different languages, begging for news and for mercy from their gods. 
I really love that line and I don't give you a lot of credit, oh, but that's I think you're a great writer for that. Don't get a big head and you have to get up and do <laughs> Oh, don't there. worry. I won't get a big head, but I really love that line. Um, and that's when I said, yeah, if any places are haunted, it, it should be mine. Mm-hmm. They only found one man, Peter Urban in a sinkhole. And they kind of thought like, Hey, we, okay, we might be able to get some people out through these kind of sinkholes that are. Well, they were more worried that, that some of the, the, people in town, the families would try crawling into the sinkholes. Oh, oh See, they'd had like problems idiots. with the sinkholes before, like kids and people's cows and stuff had fallen in them. So they cows. thought, you know, what if they think remember the sinkholes and decide to climb down there and try to rescue somebody and end up dying. So they put guards out there and then one of the guys standing there and he hears a noise coming from the sinkhole. And so some, somebody volunteered to climb in there to see what was going on. And that's when they found Peter. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, Again, some people were torn apart. Others are just poisoned and simply looked asleep. Recovery efforts are terribly difficult. The crowd outside grows restless and wives start kind of going crazy, clawing at their faces. I mean, just grief stricken people, you know, which I, I, I get it. Girl throws herself in the river and yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm just, this is how I'm going to end it. I guess she couldn't swim. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't mean to make fun of the dead, but it's been a long time. Well, it's a pretty good size. It's a pretty big river. I mean, it's a good size river. So they can't even catch a break diving graves due to the weather because they're filling up with water and shit. The official quote unquote official death toll is 361, making it the deadliest mining disaster in American history. But you have noted It's way bigger than that. Well, yeah, it's impossible. There were 478 guys. They checked in that morning. That doesn't count the support staff, just the guys that were there. So how can the death toll only be 361? It doesn't even make sense. It can't. There's like a hundred, a little over a hundred guys that they don't even count. Is and is that a thing? Is that just negligence, or is that a like a life insurance? That's to make them look. It's to make them not look so bad. Okay, I didn't know if it was. It's all about the mind payout. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Nine years later, um, my number eight eventually kills Peter Urban, the one who got away. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Which I know, right? Yeah. Um, The ghost story. So many men said there were just too many dead miners still roaming the older sections, and they hear a lot of voices. Some would follow a small group of miners down a tunnel and just have them disappear. And there are even animal ghosts down there, which we don't talk about too much. No, not too much, do we? Um, But yeah, horses in particular, people just hear hooves running right by them and and just get worried and move up against the wall and and nothing happens. But they, for weeks, they heard these horses just going crazy. Yeah. Oh, man, I don't know. Do little kid ghosts scare me more or horse hooves? I don't know. (laughs) Um, our last story, let's talk about the Dar Mine. So owned and operated uh, by the Pittsburgh Mine Company. And honestly, Troy, I put this in before I read anything else. I said, oh, Pittsburgh, they have some great bridges there. Yeah. Um, that's what that's what I put due to Renee and everything. Uh-huh. Um, and then you find out there's no bridge in this story. Yeah, and that's, that's <laughs> why I had to bring it up because I was like, this is hilarious. I know. 450 people in a day shift. Uh, there's a patch town called uh, Van Meter. Yeah. Some also lived in privately owned houses in a town called Jacobs Creek. So this is this is kind of different. Is this the more rich? It's an odd thing. Yeah, it's it's an odd thing. Um, For some reason, the the way this was divided, there's 
because of the way that, that this, and as it says here, that when people tried to come to the mine entrance, they couldn't because there's just not enough room on the side mm. of the river because of the of way the town was. The mine okay. is up higher elevated and it's not, you, you don't go down to get into it. You go straight into the mountain Yeah, because it's the Alleghenies, which is a come, kind of comes off the Appalachians. And so there's not a lot of room there. So there wasn't enough room for everybody to live. So they had this town on the other side of the river too. But that one wasn't a patch town so much as it was a town that miners who could afford their own homes bought their own houses over in Jacobs Creek. And then, of course, the only way, because it, the river was too deep and rough for a ferry and they didn't have a bridge, it was two miles away, they built the Sky Ferry, which was just, it was literally, I've seen some pictures of it. There's, I, I can't imagine going to work in that thing every oh, day. Hell no. It's a wooden box that holds six people. Sure. And they get in it and have to pull themselves across the river. Well, I no thought thing. that the, I thought the disaster was going to have something to do with that. But but my question, I guess, about Jacobs Creek was was that built out of necessity because because of the entrance, or was that like an evolution where people where miners could actually own their own homes? No, I think it was more out that. of necessity. I don't think that everybody who lived in Jacobs Creek. I think there were company houses there too. Okay, just not like there was in Van Meter. Okay, uh, but right. there were a lot of people who did own their own homes over there on that side of the river. Got it. Okay. Uh, by December 1907, the mine had been experiencing problems with gas for months. Uh, miners official, minor officials won't fix it. There's you know people that leave their jobs because of it. The foreman, William Campbell, managed to get construction started on new vent shafts, and he got everything accomplished and everything worked out. And everything was great, right? Or no, sorry, no, sorry. He didn't get it accomplished. It didn't work. December, they were, all, they were working on it. They yeah, just didn't get it done it. fast enough. enough. Yeah. yeah. December 19th, 1907. 226 men going to the mine. This mine was located, at a, like we said, a high elevation that pushed into the foothills instead of right. going down. Right. Gas ignites, glass shatters, the river water goes flying. Rescuers here were the first to use uh, breathing apparatuses during recovery efforts. I'm guessing just because technology advanced. Yeah, it was the first time learned. that anybody had put them to use. Yeah. Right. So only it like with the other ones, those guys could only stay in there for 10 or 15 minutes and then they would, it could kill them. Right. So and then with, the, with the breathers, they could stay in for a couple of hours. But even then, after a while, they the, the gas got so bad down deep, they couldn't even do that. Do you know anything about these breathers? Was there was it a tank? Was it a filter? Do you know anything about them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen pictures. They kind of look like gas masks. Okay. So, I mean, it's it's more of a it's more of a filter to keep out the gas than it sure. is like. I mean, they weren't going in with like scuba tanks. You know, okay, I so mean, it a, wasn't like that. A filtration system. Yeah, it was a filtration face. system. You know, um, just like a yeah. Yeah, okay. that's a better description, like a gas sure. mask. Sure. So yeah, so they figured out some kind of. Um, window screen that somehow kept out the gases that yeah, they didn't for a while, well, you know, up to a point, up yeah. to a point. Yeah. And then yeah. they probably set on fire. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So only unmarried men were allowed in these uh, rescue efforts. So um, yeah, so I'd be fine. Um, if you could go <laughs> send me yeah, orphans and yeah, orphans yeah. and unmarried yeah. men. 12 year olds <laughs> and me. Um, they do find a survivor, Tom Williams, who jumped into a coal car because he was just kind of walking back in, jumped into a coal car. I'm just imagining like flames and everything going oh, around yeah. this man. I know, like, right? Yeah, and and it, it was just, make it this would make a good movie, I think. It would, yeah. I feel like I've seen this before, yeah. and it's just like, yeah, he jumped in. Yeah, idiot at the wrong at the right place, the wrong time. Um, the only other survivor, Joel Mapleton. 
So William Campbell's um, head, the guy we talked about earlier, his head had been torn off by the blast. They find a couple yeah. people in his office or his little shanty thing. It takes two days to find all the bodies that were intact. And th- this is what you said. I want to repeat it. The explosion had ripped along the mine ceilings. The blast had surged through the tunnels with such force that men standing upright had the tops of their heads sheared off where they stood. Salvage teams found so many limbless and headless bodies that many of them became so overwhelmed they had to be helped back to the surface. Most refused to return to the darkness. That's brutal as fuck. That's one of the yeah. coolest things you've ever said. <laughs> um, yeah, well, no, and, you know, and we, I, I want to, I want to stress the part about the guys who, sure. the four guys who jumped into the coal cars, they oh, didn't yeah. survive like that other guy did. Uh, they were the blast hit them with such force that yes. the clothing, their clothing was embedded in the wood of the cars, and some of the fabric actually flew off their bodies and embedded in the coal seam in the wall because uh-huh. it's softer than the rock. And it always reminds me of when you see those pictures after a tornado and mm-hmm. there'll be like a blade or like a piece of straw that goes <laughs> through a tree and stuff, yeah, you know, that's what it reminded me of. And I thought, Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. I can't, can't imagine. Uh, the crowd outside was smaller than usual simply because like we mentioned earlier, there's really no place to stand. Yeah. But 25,000 people turn up at Jacobs river approximately things get heated because of the, um, what I like to call, they took our gerbs kind of people. Uh-huh, uh, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. From yeah. South park. Um, which is luckily the last, which is time. really dumb in this case, because it, why are you complaining about right. foreigners taking your jobs when they're all dead? Look, <laughs> Troy, luckily, that was the last time in America people um, ignorantly complained about people taking the job. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, Fine. Good thing, yeah. (laughs) All the reviews we're going to get now. Um, Dr. C.A. Wynn is overwhelmed but decides, he's like, look, nobody's, no body's going to be released till we get everybody identified because I I saw what happened, you know, at this other place. I want to make sure everything's cool. This seems to me like a fun jigsaw puzzle that I would be good at. <laughs> oh, Let, let's match up, you know, hands to heads to torso. It just seems yeah. like. Uh-huh. And let's wait a week to <laughs> yeah. do it. You well, know? I mean, yeah, cover up my big nose and I'm just going to go in there <laughs> and just start plopping down. By, you know, this just matching. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, this, this temporary morgue was disgusting. You could smell it for miles, which, of course, I mean, it's a bunch of rotting yeah. bodies. I, yeah. I, I admire what he was trying to do. Yeah, it, it was a good idea. It because it did work somewhat. Somewhat, you know. sure. But Finally, I think that, I mean, I think waiting helped, but I think that just by saying, nah, we're going to, nobody gets to bury anybody until, I mean, even if you've identified them, that seemed kind of pointless to me. I yeah. Mean, I know it was an incentive thing to get people to really pay attention, but I don't know, man. <laughs> right. I will, I mean, I, I don't, I wonder how they do it now after you mentioned. So like if you, hundred percent identify somebody in some disaster are they just like okay this one's good to go we move them out yeah. like, I, I don't know i don't know how it works I'm, I'm i i, I don't thankfully i don't really either now you know <laughs> yeah. i mean i i know you know how historically it worked you know because i've written about all these fires and you know and floods and boats tipping over and all kinds of stuff and they usually just take all the bodies like this and put them in a big space and then let the people who have family that are missing walk up and down the aisles looking for their dead relatives. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, now we've got the, you know, we've got DNA, we've got dental records and right, things. Right, so right, if there's right. a lot of unclaimed people, there are ways to look into it. But but look, though, 
every time there was a big disaster like that, there was almost always somebody who was unidentified, even, sure. you know, after 9-11. I mean, right. not everybody was identified. And that's not changed in history. It happens. It just happens. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. And I don't think there's as many jokes as I could make. I don't think there's a good I don't think there's a good no. answer. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, finally, on Christmas, he released the 247 bodies pulled from the ruins, whether people knew what was going on or not. The company pays for the funerals, but it was in a pretty shady and <laughs> shitty way. Yeah. yeah. The unidentified remains are buried in a mass grave and without even a marker. They didn't even mark it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. which it's done later. Come, I mean, come on, guys. Like, you went through all this trouble. You can't put yeah. one fucking plaque up or something. Yeah. Um, but it happened, you know, two years later, the mine goes on, it's renamed, it's closed, it opens, eventually it closes again in 1950. You said now there's a walking path there. Yeah, there's um, a bike trail where the railroad tracks used to be. That's yeah. a nice one, too. Right. And many people yeah. report the trail um, has strange atmosphere, reports of men arguing, confrontations. People have been camping there and heard uh, scary things and then peaced yeah. out. And you, this is where you kind of said that, like, somebody could potentially venture into um, one of the shafts a little bit. And yeah. it doesn't seem like a I've got some pictures somewhere from from that from yeah? the air shaft. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I have to find them, but I do have some. Oh, man. OK. Well, damn, I don't even. I don't even have any more jokes or anything to make. This is mine. Sound terrible. I'm so yeah. Happy. I know. Like, I know, man. This shit and like let's let's go to solar. Let's go to wind. <laughs> Something. I know. I know. Uh, let's send this to our politicians. Anyway, because it's still dangerous even yeah, today. It, it has to be. I mean, it's not as dangerous as it used to be. There are we have safety standards now, but the I mean the the companies are just as bad as they were then, but we have more standards and, and, and government agencies to protect the lives of people, but shit still happens. People yeah. still die. It's still a bad job. You still kind of end up with black lung, you know, I mean, people still die from that today. They just, they do, you know, yeah. and it's not, it's never been a great job and it, I mean, it never will be, but it's, yeah. it's also, in addition to one of the deadliest jobs, it, it was in historically speaking, one of the most, you know, dangerous and deadly too, because of all the violence involved with the strikes and all that stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating history. It really is. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also a pretty dark history. And yeah. Illinois, you know, is, it was a big coal state, just like Pennsylvania and some of these others. And, you know, we've got a history of massacres and stuff here. So, I mean, stuff happens. It's a, it's was never, never a great job. Sure. Yeah. You've never seen the um, documentary Zoolander about the dangers of documentary the, the dark lung, our black lung pop. Um, yeah. Anyway, it is. I, now I just want to give a quick shout out to um, our most recent Patreon supporters. So thank you so much for supporting the show to Chris, Chuck, Tina, Sherry, Lexi, Shyler, Shyler, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Griffin, Whitney, Mandy, and Danielle. So thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't and wouldn't do the show without you. And um, we've been putting out some pretty dope stuff. On yeah, we have. We have. And, we have. and, and we're going to keep that going, too. So yes. 
Yeah, awesome. I've already got plans for the next ones after this one's over. Boy. Oh, boy. And yeah, I have a fun thing, too. I'm going to put out um, just for people who are interested. I, I interviewed some people that did a show on Discovery Plus. Um, so I'm going to put that out as a little oh, cool. um, fun Patreon thing. And sometimes oh, yeah, we'll yeah. do like new movie reviews and stuff. Yeah. Like um, I get to see them early sometimes. And then other times it's just Troy and I arguing about random stuff and we're <laughs> put on the Patreon like or the podcast. So it's great. Yeah, sign up for the Patreon. Check that out at um, patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And then it is now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Troy, I am so excited for this email. Oh God! It no, it's not bad. It's just you're not even gonna like. You're not even gonna understand why I like it. But it's it's the subject line is "Hello from Australia." It says hi, Troy and Cody. I recently discovered your podcast and have binged every episode, and I'm now all caught up. And then I think it's a puking emoji. No, it's a crying emoji. Um, oh, okay. I especially a puking love- emoji. <laughs> nice. I especially love the New Orleans season. I fell in love with the city from afar after reading Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles. I hope to visit one day. Season six has also been great, especially the Salem episode. I have a very distant aunt that testified with, uh, with Abigail Williams against Mary Estee at Salem. My aunt died after testifying from self-inflicted wounds to her neck, but according to John Hale, it was only possible for her to have inflicted the wounds because she was bewitched. Oh anyway, keep up the awesome work. I look forward to hearing more from you both. And that's from Melissa. Troy, we have people that listen to us in Australia. Yeah, I remember um, I heard something from her recent, not too long ago. She sent me a message oh, okay. and so asked me so, a question. Not me? So, yeah. Oh, no, it was a book related question. <laughs> so, okay. I was going to say, I was like, Melissa, I made not one Crocodile Dundee reference, not one <laughs> God. shrimp on the, like not, nothing. I was so excited to have a listener from Australia and make one comment about that murder continent. No, I would, yeah. love, I would love to go to Australia. I'm just, I'm scared of every just <laughs> everything that lives there. there. I'm scared yeah. of everything that lives there. You know, everything there wants to kill you. Yeah. So. Do I step off the plane and I have to fight an anaconda? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Cause I've never been. And I know that I don't think they have anacondas. I don't, I don't know. But apparently know. giant crocodiles. So yeah. And, and spiders too. I know. Oh yeah. I remember point. clock spider, which is a famous meme from back in the day, but um, anyway, thank you. And I love that also it says, and in the email it says sent on the go with Vodafone, which I don't know if that's an Australia thing or just a thing be. I don't know, but it's, it was just fun. I don't know. We just, nobody ever emails me from Australia. So I got, <laughs> got it. Um, but thank you so much, Melissa. And uh, yeah, people hit us up. Troy, that is all I have for this. Episode. Okay. All right, man. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Um, thanks for uh, your reviews on iTunes. We always appreciate those uh, and hope that you will continue to do them. Uh, I think you can review us other places too, which is nice, but that's the one that, that helps us the most. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you get a chance to give us a review, we'd really appreciate it. I mean, you know, as long as it's a good review, yes. uh, if it's a bad one, just email Cody. Cause he loves to hear from you. Just hit me so. up. Anyway, um, thanks again. Be sure to use the uh, podcast discount code when you, uh, you know, make reservations or, uh, you know, buy books or whatever. You just got to put in podcast. You get money off. Uh, We already talked about Patreon, so I won't talk about that this week. I will just say thanks to everyone for listening and um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yes. This episode of the American. We won't see you, but you know what I mean? We'll see you. I will listen. Well, I will actually, I won't listen to you. You will listen to us, but 
I think they know what I mean. Yeah, Troy told me, he said, just make sure the episode's done. I'm not going to listen to it. Just Oh, no, sure. I always listen to it. I know you do. This episode of the American Hollywood Well, Podcast, not all of it, but... It was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited I don't by listen me, to Cody Beck. The music for this season is performed by Packy Lundholm, who I've seen is gallivanting around France? Well, all Europe. Yeah, Europe? he was at the Cavern Club where the Beatles used to yes. play last Packy week. Packy and Maggie, so. that's amazing. Yeah. Um, you can find more about his music and upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and Facebook. And you can find us on most of those places too. Plus you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Honestly, any podcast app that is out there, you can find us on. And I add us to new ones yeah, as they come I along. I know, I knew you did. And yeah, you can find us anywhere. See the website at AmericanHuntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. We also have like, we have like an about us section. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, and if you're somebody's grandpa, that's a good place to listen if you can't figure out your phone. Because you can just click on, you know, you can't can figure out how to right download there. podcasts. You can just, dude, you can just click right there and you can listen to the newest episode. That, like when this one, like, I, okay, I put out the episodes around 3 a.m. And then by, I'd say like 7.30, 8 a.m. Oh, don't make it sound like you're awake at 3 a.m. putting up the podcast. No, I, I schedule yeah. it. I know, but you you made it sound like that you're like no, at your it's, desk. It's on it's on the website. I'm saying at like ah, seven eight a.m. I'm not I awake see. at three a.m. Are you kidding oh, me? I'm dude. I'm old as hell now. I've been taking <laughs> melatonin and I'm reading a book and I'm lights out by ten thirty. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for Troy calling me old. And um, we couldn't <laughs> I and I probably didn't. wouldn't do this without you. So until next time, that see ya. Troy me old. Yeah, goodbye. So bye. See ya. <laughs> oh boy. Fun. I gotta, I gotta cut out everything where Troy called me old. <laughs> <laughs>